You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with Choose Health, and this is session 43. to the Physio Matters podcast. I'm still Jack Chew, but you're very fortunate this month. I'm hardly on this episode. It's uh, conducted by one of our team members, our clinical lead, in fact, Mark Reed, who you might not have heard much from before. He was certainly on our team episodes, I think the last couple of team episodes, as well as if you've been paying any attention to any of our recent public-facing stuff through Choose Health, where we're trying to reach out and give some patient information on certain topics, and you might have seen him doing some pieces to camera. Uh, but yeah, you've got the delight of hearing him interview someone today. Um, I've got a bit of news for you before I go. The Physio Matters team will be wanting, at least, to get to events near you. So if you happen to be involved in any panels or committees or you're part of any members of any organizations that run sort of annual conferences and things like that and you think it'd be good for us to be there scrutinizing the ideas or putting interesting questions under people's noses or broadcasting live streams from it then please let us know drop us an email we've got a pdf that we can send out to you explaining what we can do and trying to sell our services and uh, only if, of course if you think that that would be of use but make us aware of it and we can do what we can to get ourselves in that room and to broadcast said room outside of it and, and try and bring it out to the wider population of physios across the UK and the world. Quick nod to our last Physio Matters podcast with Dave Baker. It's gone it's gone down an absolute storm. Relatively niche topic in some ways, you know, compared to some of the specific joint you know, joint specific or body part specific stuff. Like you you always wonder how those things are going to go down in terms of download rates, but it was it flew off the shelves, even though it was a lengthy one. And the bonus content's gone down well as on, on Patreon with the neuropathic medication and stuff. So I'm not surprised in a sense because the content was good and so it's sort of always the, those things word always spreads. But there was, I mean, some of the feedback's been phenomenal, such as it being our best podcast to date because it's really changed people's minds or views on things. People thought it might be a bit gimmicky for physios to be particularly involved in pharmacy, and yet through conversation uh, and explanation, Dave manages to persuade them to go full 180 on their views on it. So that's that's a mark of a good podcast, a mark of a good set of ideas from that man. And I'm not surprised. Fantastic thinker and a massive privilege to be working with him and Akpomit on that podcast and some future ones. So if you haven't already, then get back and listen to that. But for this month, you've got our clinical lead, Mark Reed, with Nick Grantham, who's a strength and conditioning coach. But I'll leave Mark to interview to introduce you to Nick into his work and then uh, you've got the delight of an hour in which they discuss strength and conditioning principles namely program design and i'll see you at the end for my executive summary until then bye from me hi i'm mark reed clinical lead here at choose health and i've been roped into delivering this month's episode of the physio matters podcast which is mainly on my favorite specialist subject of strength and conditioning and in particular program design in around the rehab phase. Um, strength and conditioning is a bit of a, a hot topic in physiotherapy at the moment. And I think it's it's quite rightly so. It's something that, that isn't really covered in any great detail during undergraduate degrees. Um, but it's something that we spend a lot of time doing is actually creating rehabilitation programs for our, our patients' injuries. So it's something that is, is it certainly linked closely with what we do on a daily basis. And as such, a, a knowledge of strength and conditioning, exercise prescription, is going to be beneficial in improving the, the effectiveness of our, 
rehab program. Now, when we were looking for people to come on and discuss these topics with, one person in particular stood out, and that is this month's guest, which is Nick Grantham. Nick is a strength and conditioning coach who works with a wide variety of of athletes and elite teams. Nick actually delivers a course aimed at physiotherapists, particularly to develop their knowledge and understanding of exercise prescription and how can it, it can influence rehab so that we can all create more effective programs, really. So we really couldn't find anyone who was more suited to talk about this topic on this show than, than Nick. And Nick was very generous enough to give us his time. I actually caught him at the end of a consult with, with one of his athletes and we recorded it in true strength and conditioning style in a gym, um, sat on benches. <laughs> so um, apologies if the acoustics are a little bit out and apologies for some of the noises that you might hear in the background, but I'm sure you'll forgive that because the, the content, as always, is gold. See you on the other side. Right, so I'm delighted to be sat here with Nick Grantham, strength and conditioning coach. Uh, we're going to discuss all things strength and conditioning and hopefully get to get to the bottom of how physios can be better okay, Mark, at doing well, I, some I, of I, these things. I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do um, my best. So uh, the first first question then is, is what is strength and conditioning? Why do you think it's important for, for rehab professionals to have a, an understanding of it? Um, so strength and conditioning is basically training. It's physical preparation. Uh, it... Our, our job as strength and conditioning coaches is, is to sort of bridge the gap between the science, the, the book smarts, and then the practicality, the, the application. Um, and it, it can cover a wide range of uh, interventions depending on the team that you're working with and depending on the role within the, the team and if it's a, a rehab focus. But typically, if, we, if we're talking about where does it fit within rehab, strength and conditioning typically comes towards more of that end stage rehab, return to training, return to practice, return to competition, that end. We get to do the sort of the sexy, interesting stuff. Um, although, you know, today I've been doing a workshop and actually I talk about it and say physiotherapy is strength and conditioning, strength and conditioning is physiotherapy. It's just names that have been given to professions. We are all doing the same thing. It, it's training. That's ultimately what we're doing. We have a performance outcome and it's just that each practitioner's skill set will lend itself to being more important at certain points of the rehab process. So in the acute stages where it's diagnostics and initial rehab, of course it's going to be the medical staff, it's going to be the physios, the docs, the surgeons that are going to have the main impact. The S&C coach is still involved, it's just to a lesser degree. And then as you transition through the phases of rehab and reconditioning, a bit like a graphic equaliser, you just start to turn down the physio and turn up the S and C. Um, so it's it's that it's that melting pot. So are the, are the lines getting increasingly blurred over time? Was there ever a point where physios would have a a, a point where they just handed over to S and C coaches? Would or and is that line getting more and more blurred over time? I, I hope it is. Um, so for a long time, well, strength and conditioning, certainly in, in the UK and Europe, didn't exist. Uh, when I studied, I studied as an exercise physiologist, sports scientist. There was no such thing as strength and conditioning coaches. People that worked at clubs and sports that did physical preparation were either ex-military PTIs or, or ex-players. Um, 
and there wasn't such a thing. You're a scientist or you're a physio. Um, so the physios kind of did everything. They had it all to themselves. They did the rehab, the diagnosis, the, the initial rehab. They did core, you know, core was their thing, proprioception was their thing. And, and then these snotty upstarts came along called strength and conditioning coaches, certainly in the UK, around about sort of late 90s. So I, I did my SNC qualification in 99, 2000. So as an organisation, um, that wasn't a good answer. It's just yeah. we're, we're, in a, we're in a gym and it's quite noisy. Um, so, yeah, in the, in the early sort of 2000s, strength and conditioning started becoming recognised as a profession. And I think that's when there were, were probably a lot of problems and, and maybe a bit of animosity. And in the bad old days, everyone operated in silos. I'm the physio, you're the sports scientist, you're the SNC coach. We all operate in our own individual areas. And when I'm finished with them, you can have them. And then when you finish with them, they go to the next person. And it was a fairly disjointed, not very effective and efficient um, you know, operating as a multidisciplinary team, but in silos. Whereas I think now, people are just recognising that, like, like I said in the first question, we're just all trying to do the same thing. We are trying to get an athlete or an individual who's injured back to performance. And it's just that you have a, you know, a bit like uh, in Taken, Liam Neeson, you've got a specific skill set that is very useful. And at that point, that's absolutely when you need it. But as you transition through, my training as a strength and conditioning coach lends itself more to the more aggressive end, the more end stage. So I think, so, sorry, so I think to, to answer that is that we've, we've, we're becoming more comfortable in each other's domains, mm. that physios will stand shoulder to shoulder of S&C coaches and vice versa. I think there's less of that. There are still some medical departments that will be very much silos pass you on, but mm. I think that's less so. And, that, and that's got to be a good thing for, for everyone involved if, if we're breaking down those barriers. Now, your, your course specifically aims... To, to break down the barriers or at least the, the course that you run aimed at physiotherapists uh, break down some of the the, the differences in skill set between yeah. physios and S&C so w- what what made you look and, and think this would be beneficial it would be great for physios to have a better knowledge of, of S&C principles was it something that was done badly? <coughs> um, because I, I saw practitioners that had mad crazy diagnostic skills they, they can look at people on plints and look at scat and they can go right grade two that's an mcl partial that's all these things that they can do mad crazy diagnostic skills great exercise selection you know you think, right that injury i've got this shopping list of exercises which is brilliant but then you'd see it all fall into bits when they, it would just get thrown together and ad nauseum three sets of ten as your, as your default sets and reps protocol. And I, I do that slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's still very much the, the profession norm that three sets... And people don't even know where that comes from. It's like... <laughs> so uh, where, do, where does it come from? Uh, well, Captain Thomas DeLorman and, and his pal, Mr Watkins, back in 1940s at a military hospital in uh, Chicago, uh, where injured soldiers were coming back from the front line. They had to rehab them. They came upon three sets of ten progressive resistance exercise was, was born. Um, so the three sets of 10 that currently gets practiced is a bastardized version, it's not even done properly. Um, whereas what they had was they looked at 50%, 75%, 100% of your rep max. And you know, 
they found that strength was one of the limiting factors in the rehab. And when the soldiers got stronger, because they followed essentially a hypertrophy program, increased muscle mass, which if you imagine coming back from the front line having been injured, mm. you're going to have atrophy Indeed. associated with an injury. That's why they were successful. But over the last 70 years, it seems that no one in formal education of physiotherapists has really addressed properly program design and really understand, well, what are the different strength qualities that you're trying to develop? Because the exercise prescription for reactive strength is very different to that of absolute strength or hypertrophy. And what's being dished out is a very nebulous, one-size-fits-all, three sets of ten, low-level, low-loading, and it, it's just not really doing the job. And it's not the physio's fault, it's because they're not getting taught it in their formal qualifications to a, a good enough degree. So you're graduating with great diagnostics, great exercise selection, limited knowledge of program design, and actually the, the ability to rehabilitate an athlete back to full fitness lives and dies on the exercise, the, the program design element, how you put that all together. And, and that's the bit that I, I felt was often lacking. And from what I see delivering these workshops, there's, there's a thirst for it. There's a, there's a people coming in going, yeah, I've just graduated. I'm not being taught this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's still the norm that on undergraduate physiotherapy degrees that there's very little formal strength and conditioning yeah. training at all. Um, and the exercise prescription knowledge you get is often led by practitioners in clinic themselves have been practicing for three lots of ten for yeah. for quite some time so if, if we pick into that then what what would what would be the the specifics or or the different areas where you feel we can go beyond three sets of ten so why is it important to go beyond three sets of ten okay uh so it's, it's quite difficult to do it really succinctly but if you train within a certain repetition range you will get very distinct physiological adaptations. So the reason DeLorme and Watkins probably had success, I don't know why, but I can't go 70 years back, but my logic would suggest that sits right within the range where you work uh, multiple sets, multiple reps, moderate to heavy load, hypertrophy. So that's about laying down cross-sectional area, making structural changes in, in the muscle. So the reason they got stronger, got better, is because they increased the potential to be stronger. So. The reason you'll get some success in rehab if you do three sets of 10 is because you'll probably be laying down new muscle mass. Getting your weaker atrophied uh, clients, patients, stronger. The problem then comes when, if you're returning to sport or any athletic performance, and that's not necessarily sport, just moving the sofa is an athletic performance. You've got to lift the load under at speed, running for a bus, day-to-day -day activities, mowing the lawn, all these sorts of things require the expression of strength within a speed, within a time constraint. And th there's research that will show you that, you know, low level, low load just won't, won't deliver the strength gain. So if we look at specificity of movement, specific adaptations to impose demands, wh which basically whatever you train for is the adaptation that you're going to get. So if you work slow, relatively slow, moderately controlled, moderate loads, you're going to get good at doing that stuff. The minute you need to move high force or high speed um, repeatedly or as a one-off effort, if you haven't trained that, well, well, guess what? You're not going to be prepared for it, so you're going to re-injure. So you get on this march of futility. Um, you know, the Penrose Steps is a, is a 
image that I use at the start of the talk. And it's just going round and round in circles. You rehabilitate, you get, you discharge, you've, you've ticked some of the boxes, but your, your general population client is healthy, but what you don't realise is they're going to go and play five-a-side football at the weekend. Well, that's a high force, high axel, D-cell, lots of loading. If they've not been exposed to that in rehab, guess what? First time they do it, chances of them re-injuring is going to happen. Guess who's going to be coming back to see you on, the, on Monday morning? Yeah. And, it, and you go on this march of futility round and round. It's a good business model. It's a good business model <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you've not got many scruples. But the, the idea really is to make yourself redundant. You know, you want yeah. people to be able to move on and, and, and go, go out and not just survive, but, but thrive in the outdoor uh, environment away from the physios. Would, would it be fair to say then that, that, that moving beyond three sets of ten becomes more important in the latter phases of, of the rehabilitation? Or, or would you, you know, from, from day one? From day, from day one. From day one, there needs to be a better understanding of how you manipulate sets and reps and load. So typically, if, if we look at people go, okay, I'm going to go low load initially, I'm going to go higher repetitions because I want to get some volume in there, motor patterning, whatever that means. <laughs> I want to get movement, re-education, whatever that means. And what you see, logically it makes sense, the volumes are, are right, but the approach is, is wrong because you see someone practicing, say, five repetitions out of 15 that they've been prescribed, or 20 or 25, because they want volume. The first five are great, the last 15 are crap. So if we're trying to re-educate, what have we re-educated? We've re-educated 15 crappy movements as opposed to five good ones. Mm. So what we need to understand is the total volume we might be looking for is, say, 20 repetitions. But if we understand how to manipulate the reps and say, actually, we're going to cluster that up and we'll do it in sets of three or sets of five mm. and make sure we get practically perfect, good, good movement, then a little break, then we go again, then a little break, then we go again. So I think even from day one, session one, understanding like what's our end game, where do we need to mm. get to, and working back, we talk about phase potentiation in strength conditioning, basically it's like dominoes. You line your dominoes up, a bit like the start of Blue Peter or record breakers back in the day, mm. and you knock the one domino over and it sets off this chain reaction. We've, we've got to be looking at, okay, what is the specific strength quality that we need to improve in the acute stage of rehab and then in reconditioning? How does that then knock onto the next domino of return to practice, then return to training, then return to competition? And I think what often happens is it's kind of a volume-based, relatively low load, particularly if you're looking at NHS and, and private practice where they don't have uh, the ability to overload excessively uh, or, or progressively more, mm. really, mm. With, with load. You know, you're talking like black band might be the... TheraBand might be the way it goes and a, and a 5K dumbbell if you're yeah. lucky. I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek. Okay, but you oh, get that's the, idea. the That's yeah. the NHS yeah. clinic I work is exactly and, that. In and, fact, and, we don't have black therapy. And, and, and that's it. You know, so if, if that's all you've got as the as the overload, there'll come a point where that that's not going to work. You need a stimulus that's going to be higher load, lower reps, lower sets, to to give you that strength or reactive strength. So, I think it's like day one, understanding how it progresses. Yeah. So completing a a, a, a needs analysis of where the patient needs to be at the end. Yeah. And working backwards from there through the phases. Yes. Yeah. Right. Train, train with a purpose. What? How did you get broken? How did you break down? What caused the injury? What was it? Acute load loading? Was it a, a, a chronic loading? You know, what caused it? And then if we understand the mechanism, mm. and if we understand also, well, what what do you want to be able to do? Do you want to go back and run a five k? Do you want to be able to pick the grandkids up and swizz them around without blowing your back? 
because if you think about an action like that, playing in the park with your grandkids, lifting them and, and turning them around, there's, there's rotation, flexion, extension, there's absorbing force, producing force. Like, if you've blown your back doing that, doing low-level bodyweight activities is not going to cut it. Moving a 5K dumbbell is not going to cut it if your kid weighs 20 kilos. You've got to be able to... You, you've got to talk about causative cures. So whatever broke it, at some point, you're probably going to have to visit that as part of your rehab. You're going to have to get at or close to speeds and movements and loads that will be protective um, moving forward. Otherwise, you just get on your Penrose steps and you're, you're back in again. So I suppose that, that the real danger of underloading then, as, as you see, is, is that it's got to come round again. Something's yeah. got to... We're going to re-injure if we chronically underload these people. So, so like the fundamental thing and the thing that Watkins and DeLorme understood was progressive resistance exercise, progressive overload. So one of the, one of the fundamental um, uh, cornerstones that we know about physical preparation is, is the law of accommodation. And that's if you present the same stimulus to an organism, to, the, to the, the body, if you present the same stimulus, initially you'll get an adaptation, but over time you'll habituate, stagnate, and then detrain. And I think that's what you see in a lot of uh, rehab programs that never really get after it and never really chase the adaptations. Initially it all starts off, it's quite good. We're, of course you're going to make adaptations. You've, you've got a leg like a twiglet because it's atrophied. You're going you're gonna to get gains with whatever they chuck at you, body weight, mm. TheraBand, 5K dumbbell. But at some point, if that's all you do, the body's adapted. The body will go, okay, I've adapted to this. What else have you got for me? And it will start to detrain. So what would you say then to the, to the people who are in clinics where the highest grade of TheraBand is a blue one and the highest dumbbell they've got is three kilos? Yeah. And they need to overload uh, Mrs. Smith's shoulder. Yeah. What do we do in that case? Do, do, do we have to find more load do we have to recommend gyms do we do, what do we do to continue that overall so exactly what I said to the guys today on the course either the physios or the SNC coaches are here I was like we've got to get better at cross referring we have to have confidence we have to build up a network of allied health professionals um, and not see it as a sign of weakness that actually my, I, my scope of practice finishes here and I'm actually going to now refer you on and Everyone gets protected, particularly if you're in private practice and it's like, well, I want to hold on to you. It's your livelihood. Yeah, you want to, you want to create a, 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 a need for them. I can, I'm the only one that knows your shoulder like you do. I, I'm the only one that can fix it. Um, and the same goes for S&C coaches and personal trainers, where they create this, I'm the only one that can do this fitness work. What we've got to get better at as both professions is that's that sort of silo model, the old days, working in isolation, no one talking to each other, I do this better than they do. Mm. It's going, actually, do you know what? And the way that I've worked when I've been in private practice is, is reaching out to allied health professionals. So as a running a private strength and conditioning facility, I looked for who is the local physio clinic that I think I would trust and building up a referral system with those guys and saying, right, do you know what? Um, you're gonna, I will refer to you. So when I do my needs analysis, if there's, an injury that I think needs to be assessed, I'm going to send it to you for an assessment. And equally, if you see someone that's getting towards end stage and you've run out of TheraBand and, and dumbbells, you say, right, do you know what? Actually, your next stage, you're, you're clear, you're healthy, but to return to five-a-side football or doing the park run, you need to go and see this guy. And rather than being seen as a sign of weakness, which I think some practitioners do that are insecure in their own abilities, mm -hmm. is I think it's a massive strength. 
you, you're sitting there going, I haven't got all the answers. Um, I've got a scope of practice that I've trained in and that I'm really good at. And at this point, do you know what? I'm going to hand you over to this person that I trust. And I've, I've done that in a number of private practices and it's worked really well. It's, it becomes more difficult in an NHS setting though. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you, you'll have guys that are NHS practitioners on your... What's your advice yeah. for them? It's, it's, it's really tough for the NHS guys. You know, they're doing well if they've got sort of 20 to 30 minute appointments, maybe four to six appointments, mm-hmm. and then they've got to go for extended scope if they need more. They might see someone every two to three weeks. It's just, it's so hard for them to really have an impact on on the injury and you know even if they do manage to get some of those extended sessions and, and get them to a point where they sort of rehab them reconditioned some of those clients maybe a recreational athlete that's had a break or a, or a tear and you know will want to get back to playing club rugby it's beyond their scope of practice so i think what they what they would need to do as a private clinic would is is say look okay well who do who do we know here in the region is there a local club is there a local S and C coach is there a trainer that we trust and I think they would be able to find networks and they probably wouldn't be able to formally refer I guess I, I guess that would that's be the, where the that difficulty lies in funding and yeah. things like but that but they but they could at least say listen we've done what we can here within the scope of practice our recommendation is there are within your local area there are these three trusted people they're not partners they're not linked to us formally but if you're interested we would suggest you go and look at these guys and do your sort of due diligence um i think that's not beyond the realms of possibility no and i i think one of the ways certainly that I know of, of colleagues are trying to, to solve this problem is by extending their own scope. So they're going on strength and conditioning courses, they're going on the UK SCA's foundation yep. courses, they're going, um, becoming certified strength and conditioning specialists, whatever it is, yep. um, to try and bridge that gap. Um, so if that's happening, do you think there's a rule then either for more of that to be going on and to be NHS funded or to... Uh, Perhaps even employ should the NHS be employing strength and conditioning coaches in in your view is that is that is that essential or do you think that goes beyond the scope of what what it should be? Um, yeah, I guess <laughs> funding is always going to be that is mm. there the endless pot of money, mm. but yeah, I think you, you could either do either or, or or both of them. So you know, I think it's great. We uh, as as one of the UK tutors, it's, I always love it when we get allied professionals coming on. Physios, sports therapists. I think it's great because they're not they're not trying to be S and C coaches, but they're sharing the language. They they're understanding what's going on. It would probably extend their scope and their understanding. And that's what we do. That's what I do is in my private workshops is on program design. It's like, look, you're going to go back and you're going to be better equipped to to write a program that's going to be more far reaching, mm-hmm. and then at least you understand where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could you could go physios train themselves up. I mean, to be honest, the bloody universities should be having dedicated modules on strength and conditioning and program design to, to integrate it in. Not not a couple of lectures, not not a semester. It should be embedded all the way through the course. Um, and then the other the other idea, which is a great idea, is you know, do you, do you then say actually we have scope for a strength and conditioning coach to be in the clinic? clinical setting you would then need the infrastructure and, and the kit to be able to support that but um, yeah it's, it's an option is there any signs of, of strength conditioning coaches going the other way so physios seem to be wanting to bridge the gap towards S&C 
Is there is there anybody going the other way? Is there is there SNC coaches that are looking to do more of the rehab based stuff? For going um, going physio courses, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I I've tended to spend a lot of time rehabilitating athletes and and being the the link sort of within that grey area between on the on the the physio plinth to out into the gym and onto the pitch or track or, or court. So I've tended to work very closely with, with physiotherapists on the rehab process. So I, I, I guess I've picked up knowledge and, and information of that rehab process through kind of experience rather than formal education mm. um, and then vocational courses that, that I'll go on um, and and conferences that I'll attend. So I don't always attend S&C conferences, I'll attend physio courses and conferences not trying to be a physio, you know, not trying to do that. I haven't got the qualifications to do that either. Or, um, but yeah, I think it's probably, I think you probably see people, physios making a transition to S&C, it's probably easier. Mm. You know, if, if I'm being honest, you probably will see physios like their knowledge of anatomy and underpinning uh, musculoskeletal anatomy and, and exercise selection and diagnostics it's probably easier for them to come across to S and C than it would for me as an S and C coach to come back the other way. You know, and that's me being brutally honest. It, it would be a mission for me to now try and pick up all the skills that a physio has. So, so I guess that's probably why you see more people transitioning across and, and straddling the, the two areas from a physio to S and C perspective. Fine, yeah, fine. Um, one of the things that's, that's come up a few times now um, is is program design. Um, and I know a lot, a lot of the stuff that you do on your course for, for physios is around program design. Could you, could you give us some of the, the, the highlights, the headlines, the things to look out for when designing a rehab program? What, 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 are, the, what are the fundamental principles which, which underpin the, the, the program design? Um, basically, program design is developing a logical system that will take you from point A to point B. So you've got a framework that, that you're going to build upon. And what you have to be able to do is is be comfortable with, with change. So you have a program and be aware that that's gonna flex and change over time. There'll be points where the rehab will be accelerated and there'll be points where you maybe get uh, a setback. But at least you've got a framework and you know where you're going, both with the short-term adaptations in mind and also looking further forward. Even though you might not plan, let's say you're doing an ACL, you might not plan to the minutiae what's happening in nine months' time, but you're certainly looking with a view to, okay, if we need to get there, these are the key markers that we need to get. So it's basically just trying to create a roadmap. Where are we now? Where do we want to get to? How do we want to get there? Which route? Are we going direct? Are we going the circuitous sort of scenic route? What, what are we doing? And then putting in place your checks and measures uh, along the way. So it's, uh, program design is just a, a simple logical structure. Um, where you go from big overview, what we call our macro cycle, then we bring it down into more and more detail. So your meso cycle, so training blocks, and then your micro cycle, maybe a seven to ten day period. Mm. So you just you just dialing in. I talk about in my book, you know, um, Russian dolls. It's basically you've got your big Russian doll. That's your overview of your rehab. Then we take that out into a little version. That's that's the next bit, the next mm. bit, and the next bit. So it's just a logical system is, is the key. Mm. And so then. And then underpinning that are things like progressive overload, the law of accommodation, specificity, use, disuse. Yeah. There's, there's key things that underpin all of the decisions that you make. So we've touched on specificity already. Yeah. Um, specific, specificity will have 
many different tenants. We can have specificity to load, specificity, specificity to force, to speed, to velocity. Um, where do these things come in and how important are they? So if I, is there much crossover between training at different speeds and forces? Do we need to be super specific with our rehab? Or does that depend on the context and the athlete and the sport? It, it, context will, will be everything, but go back to what's your training purpose and what's the outcome that we're trying to achieve. And if you don't rehabilitate the... It depends whether you want to rehabilitate someone to be able to survive or thrive. Mm. So if you want them just to hang on and be able to get by and maybe get a bit of a re-injury or a setback, fine, then don't worry about being specific with your rehab. If you want someone to thrive and go back and if anything be better than they were before um, then you need to be specific you need to look at the outcome what is it they need to be able to achieve how do they need to be able to achieve that what are the sort of loads they experience the ranges of movement that they're put through mm. how the force is generated and you need to train it because like I said before specific adaptation to imposed demands you will get good at what, you, what you've trained so if you've never experienced that speed of movement in the range under the load how, how on earth can you expect to be protected from it the next time you're exposed to it at the end of a rehab if you've not, if you've not even visited it um, during the course of the rehab programme? Is, is, is the times when during or if we're designing a rehab programme um, the, the things become more apparent so you know in, a, in an injured tissue in an acutely injured calf we're, we're probably going to avoid the, the high velocity stuff is there a time when you just think it becomes more important. So is it the latter stages when we should be handing over to S&C coaches anyway that you feel this should be? Yeah, like, I don't know whether you always need to hand over to us. It's like, if, if, if physios understand what's going on, they can do it. They can do it. It's like, it's not some sort of magic thing that we do. There's no there's no secrets. It's it's just, we we tend to work at that end. We've been a more of a performance-orientated profession. Mm. So it's kind of natural that as they get closer to performance, we, we get more involved. But there's no reason why a physio can't go out and do a sprint session or a physio can't do a, a lifting session. You know, they've just got to stop being worried about speed, load, force, range of movement, all combined together. It's kind of like, let the, let the brakes off. Do, do, do you think physios have been cautious over some of the... Overly yeah. cautious? Yeah, yeah. Overly absolutely. cautious? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, think, I think the way that advances in, in rehabilitation now we can be a lot more aggressive yes you have to respect tissue healing times and there are some things that you have to respect but equally we have to understand that actually particularly if you're working in sport we're working with outliers we're working with freaks that are good at sports for, for reasons some have very good healing they have very good tissue quality they, they are very well conditioned so the rate at which a, an injured athlete if they go into the injury in great shape and or, or an operation in great shape their chance of coming out quicker, respecting tissue healing, mm. but their chance of, of a, a better prop outcome quicker is going to be is, is obvious, really. So I, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've worked with athletes, and sometimes surgeons are like, "Wow, I can't believe he came back so quick." But actually, if you look at the shape they were in going into it, he's like, "He was a machine. He was an absolute machine going in there." You're, you've been used to seeing deconditioned sedentary individuals with car crash injuries, with knackered shoulders who aren't diligent with their rehab, came into the injury with, with poor as with physical condition. This guy is an elite athlete, physically well trained, super diligent going into it and coming out of it. That's why they 
rehabbed quicker. And I think that's often the, the issue with being a very evidence-based practice. I understand the importance of evidence-based, and particularly in the NHS, and you, you've got to hang a lot of what you do on that. The problem is a lot of the evidence isn't based, particularly if I work in elite sport, there aren't elite athlete research studies taking place because you can't have a randomised control. You can't give one guy one type of rehab and one guy not if they're a pro athlete. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, yes, we need evidence-based, but I think there's more need for case studies. I think there's more need for people to write up, this is what we did with this athlete. And that's far more useful to me working in top-end sport than looking at a university cohort of deconditioned students that have followed a, a program of hamstring conditioning or, or eccentric loading for tendinopathies and I go oh well, well great that's great for someone that's sedentary and deconditioned and a student just give them any training they're going to get better mm. what you want to see is you know evidence that's supporting from a, a practical aspect so I think there's been a natural element of caution I think we, we probably can be more aggressive uh, with our with our rehab um, I remember probably one of the first surgeons I worked with um, Mr. Len Funk in terms of shoulder work and he asked me to present at a conference and he was full of surgeons and I was really nervous and I presented strength and conditioning and end stage rehab and there was loads of videos and there was ACDC music on the background which he and Len was like it's brilliant because for the first time we've seen what you do the exercises that you need to do with these guys that yeah they see them on the bed they tighten them up and sutures and all that sort of stuff but it's like we actually now see what it means to rehab. So I think you know you've got people that are very progressive in their surgeries and their rehab now because they understand they've got to go back into the. It's not a tickling contest. Most sport, most sport is not. It's high, and even day to day life isn't a tickling contest. There's, you've got to be able to withstand load and force and speed and range. Mm. So there's a, there's a few things you mentioned there that I want, I want to go back on. First, the yeah. first thing I'm going to. Uh, pick up on is is the differences in responses between different populations obviously you said people super fit going into it super super committed get better very quickly you're overweight diabetic cleaner who wasn't very compliant with exercise anyway isn't going to be coming out of it and that's different is the differences in in is there specific differences between different populations in response time whether in injured tissue or in healthy tissue? I, I, um, no, I don't think you could be specific. I don't think you could nail it down to a, a, a definitive answer. What you go back to is one of the underpinning principles is the law of individual differences. And that is, take 20 people, give them all the same stimulus, you will see, within reason, different responses to that stimulus. Some, it will drop them into a massive hole. They'll be, they'll be broken. Others, it won't touch the sides. Others, it will just be just right. And, and I talk about in the, in the presentation and in the workshops the Goldilocks principle. So Goldilocks bowls up at the Three Bears house and she does, you know, um, she sits on a chair. Too small, too high, just right. Has a bit of porridge. Too hot, too cold, just right. She goes upstairs to lie on the bed. Too hot, uh, sorry, too too soft, too hard, just right. And the Goldilocks principle applies to, to your rehab and it applies to what you're giving to the, the, the individual is that we can give the same stimulus, but for each one, they're going to react slightly differently. So whether they are old, so you might say, well, old people decondition. But I've worked with 63-year-old people coming back from brain tumours that have had a active lifestyle, physically um, demanding jobs, got what I call old man strength, 
rehab way better than some of the youngsters who have had sedentary, haven't done PE since they were 13, turn up at 20-30, and they're deconditioned in a mess. So you go, well, hold on, but he's older, so surely he should be detrained. But you're younger, so you should be fitter. It, it, it just doesn't always work like that. I wish it did. It'd be a lot easier. Is, is there a general trend across age? Do, do, do our older population respond less quickly? Or is there a, more, is there a, a lower limit to what they can do? Or is there... I think a lot of that is, is societal and mm. what, what we think you should be doing when you're 50, 60, 70, 80. You know, we get into this thing about what's acceptable and, and, the, and the norm. You shouldn't do physical activity. And, mm. well, actually, it's probably the complete reverse. You, know, you keep on it, you you know, again, use disuse, one of the fundamental principles of physical preparation. Use it or lose it. So, yeah, if you become, guess what, if you become more sedentary, if you start using the car more, if you don't walk the stairs, if you get an injury and you start using different strategies to help, guess what? You will atrophy, you will dis, you'll get disuse. There's a, there's a great uh, uh, MRI scan that goes around of, I think, a 70-year-old, uh, triathlete, triathlete, yeah, and you, yeah. you look at the muscle mass, and it's like, well, they're the same age, but one's athletic and one's kept on it, and has got more lean muscle mass, probably got a greater chance of, of having a full and active lifestyle, and the other's got a leg like a twiglet. It's, you know, I think we we probably do wrap up our aging population. We probably um, we probably I talk again in the courses. We need to tell people what they can do not what they can't do. We are forever in rehabilitation settings, reminding people how broken they are. How's your shoulder? How's your knee? Is your knee sore? How is it? Tell them what they can do. Don't remind them the fact that the shoulder's knackered. You know, let's work on the other shoulder and the legs. Look at an opportunity. So I think we need to reframe the way we, we approach rehabilitation and find ways of individuals being successful and being active for a long and healthy lifestyle. So regardless of age, is to say, well, what about what about gender differences? So do, do, do females and males respond any differently? Will, so will we expect? So again, differences? in terms of physical maturation, you know, males and females will follow a very similar pattern up until puberty. So boys and girls are, are pretty evenly matched at a young age in terms of strength levels and, and various physical um, outputs. So you only get a divergence once they hit puberty and you get your secondary sexual characteristics and changes in your body composition. So typically things like slightly smaller uh, upper body for females, wider at the hips, Q angles, those sorts of things that come in, uh, less muscle mass. So yeah, once you hit puberty, there is a divergence and there is a difference. And it's probably even more reason why female population need to embrace physical preparation. Historically, it's not been there. Role models haven't been there. There's not been parity in sports. Only until 2012 at the Olympics was there parity. So positive role modelling, positive examples haven't been there. So it's no surprise that generationally you've not got females that are embracing physical preparation. It's starting to change with, with the on, onset of certain training modalities. So you're starting to get people that do embrace physical preparation, get some of the myths out of the way so they understand they're not going to turn into great hulking behemoths of muscle you know you can still be physically active and, and look aesthetically pleasing if that's what you want um, so I think yeah there will be differences and female athletes in particular will be prone to more lower limb injuries more knee issues because of the musculoskeletal structure that they've got and the lack of muscle mass um, but rather than that being a negative 
I'm, when I work with female athletes and I work with a lot of teams, I'm like, this is something we need to make a strength. This needs to become a positive. We are going to make you better just by making you stronger and more powerful. So they will be susceptible to more uh, lower limb injuries, for example. But let's try and mitigate that with a comprehensive program. Mm. So it, we, we've, we've talked quite a lot about strength and physical preparation now. And, I, and obviously there's a, a whole load of literature came out in the last few years looking at training and its importance of maintaining sort of chronic loads for, for sport. Now this is an area where there is a clear crossover between physios and SNC. Those that are working in club settings, where, where, where would you see the, this, this going? Either the injury prevention side of things, Historically, has that been a physio thing or an S&C thing? And yeah. again, are the lines becoming more blurred, right. should they? So, first of all, you can't prevent injuries. <laughs> okay, You can't prevent injuries. If you work in sport, you're going to get injured. But Bottom line, it's highly repetitive. There's contact, there's impacts. So, you know, you will get injured. What we can do as uh, physiotherapists and sports science and medicine teams and strength and conditioning coaches is try and mitigate against it try and reduce so I like injury reduction you might be oh it's semantics Nick it's not really we can try and reduce the severity we can't prevent everything I work with Daniel mountain bikers uh, rider dislocated his hip no amount of bridging or band walks or clams or abduction abduction (laughs) is going to stop that hip when he goes over the bars and smacks into the ground at 40 miles an hour that's not going to prevent a hip dislocation what I can do is put a program in that hopefully means that once he's had the surgery, he'll come out the other end as fit as he can be and we can get cracking with his rehab as quickly as we can. So, yeah, it, sorry, I got a little bit excited there. <laughs> in, injury prevention is, is a, it's just... It's a bogus term. Yeah, it's a bogus term. Injury reduction is a far better descriptor. Um, so, so what injuries can we reduce? Obviously, trauma is always going to be yeah. a hard one to reduce the incidence of. Yeah. But what injuries can we reduce? I think, your, we your non, I think your non-contact soft tissue injuries is something that you should always be striving to do. So um, I consult for a Premier League team and you know we, we, I'm going to blow my own trumpet here. As, as, a, as a medical department, sports science and medicine department, we were just recently awarded um, Premier League sports science and medicine team of the year. And that's because of the injury record, you know, 15, only 15 soft tissue injuries with, with an ageing squad, the oldest squad in the league, smallest squad in the league. Um, the highest utilisation rate so we're not rotating players that's that's not happened overnight that's been sort of five six years in, in the making as a whole sports science and medicine team everyone's signing up to this idea of chronic loading because the reason people break down is because they're being wrapped up in cotton wool so I'm a big advocate of recovering regeneration but some people just like think that you, you any sort of training you've got to have loads of time off whereas what we see is even just a little stimulus on a regular basis. And we don't do, we, we have twice a week, maybe 15 to 20 minutes with each player, strength work, strength and power development. Not a lot, not a big dose. We have a minimum dose, we have a minimum effective dose of between 50 and 70 exposures to training in a season, in a 40 week season. And then that gives us our protective benefit. And it's, it's not the only thing, there's a, there's, it's multifactorial. What we do as a medical department, what the strength and conditioning guys are doing, the fact that we've had the same manager so we know what our pre-seasons look like and what our training loads look like. It's multifactorial, so I'm not suggesting strength is, is the only. But as a whole team, we've, we've embraced the idea of chronic training. 
And you find it with, with players, they don't necessarily want the days off, multiple days off in a row. They, they, they accept that actually we just need to be training. And if you look at the Tim Gabbert work that comes out about chronic, acute and chronic loading, you know, it, it shows you time and again, it's chronic loading that, that's the key. So people ask us before, what's, what's the best injury prevention strategy? Just train. <laughs> Training consistently over time with progressive overloading, that is gonna be your best injury prevention strategy. Doing a 10 minute pre-activation or prehab, which is again, another nebulous term, <laughs> prehab, like I understand it gets used and, and why it gets used, but that was about preoperative strategies, not about before you go out and play football or before you lift, doing some mini band walks. It, it's training, just call it training, um, rather than these weird terms that we like to come up with. And I suppose that comes back to what we talked about before, where if we wrap people up in cotton wool, even during the rehab phase, they're gonna break down. Yeah shortly afterwards when we return in the sport so do we do we need to keep people training around an injury and is that something that that is done or isn't done i I know my experience is a a lot of the time that there there is an injury can completely derail a training program where, where people will will have an injury and then won't train at all yeah so so it gets better because you've done nothing yeah. And then the yeah. first time you go and do something, guess what? It gets worse. So you go back to the physio. Yeah. yeah. Like, so... It's, it's, so, so working around that then, is, is this something that you would do with, with, with your athletes um, all the time? So it, it, I'm, I imagine if, if they've got a left arm injury, there's no reason they can't train the right arm. What's wrong with the wrong, right arm? Just What's so you keep that going right yeah. all the way through. Again... Bill Knowles talks about this, he's a good strength conditioning coach, physio, um, based out in the States. Train the athlete, rehab the athlete, not the injury. Stop reminding people that the shoulder's knackered. It's not an excuse not to do something. Work with, the, work with them as a whole, remind them of what they can do. So, you know, is every player in the EPL or the Premiership Rugby or the, at the Olympics, are they all 100% injury free, fit and healthy? Are, are they? Oh, the heck? There will be athletes carrying injuries. There'll be athletes nursing injuries through, working around them, finding ways of coping them. You know, we don't live in that sugar-coated world where everyone's pain-free and everyone's perfect movement patterns. Again, it's the nature of sport, so we just need to be mindful of not putting people out into danger and and causing re-injury on purpose. But, you know, you play sport long enough, you're going to pick up some sort of injuries you said before. So do, do you put anything in place to monitor those those niggling aches, those those chronic injuries or those grumbling injuries when athletes are still in sport, still performing yeah. with, 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 with their aches? What, what do you put in place to so monitor So it, it, will, it will depend on each individual, but you know something as simple as a, a knee-to-wall test and looking at ankle range of motion. We've got players that know once that starts to drop below a certain level, if they don't do something that's going to alter the way that they're running or, or lifting, which could then exacerbate an existing or, or bring up a new injury. So they will be very like mindful that keeping a track of that, when that starts to tighten up, I've got to have an intervention or maybe some soft tissue work or I just need to get back on top of my ankle mobilisation, whatever it is. So something as simple as that. We can look at... Um, 
players coming back from calf strains or Achilles tendinopathies and we might have a program where we look at system mass volume load or volume loading so what what's the amount of weight they've been lifting and then when it gets to a set point you know we, we start to see reductions in pain so you might link that with with pain scales and go well we know that your minimum effective dose is you know x amount of reps at this load so let's keep that going and then sometimes you see players go missing a little bit in the season and guess what we then start to link that to oh actually we've been seeing a bit more in the physio room we say well actually the two are linked he's gone missing from here he's not been doing his personal rehab work you're seeing more time of him on the plinth let's let's stop doing that let's cut that off now get them back into their um, remedial work and their conditioning work so that they're not getting the treatment or the injury isn't flaring up again so yeah there's definitely monitoring on an ongoing basis that you can do either using sophisticated measures but more often than not it's just it's very simple counting reps sets loads ranges of movement yeah yeah fine fine um how, how much does so certainly when we're, we're looking at um rehabbing injuries we see, we see a lot of uh, variations in, in in pain depending on activity and things like that is there is there a, a cut-off point where you think if someone's beyond this this pain level i'm not gonna put them in the gym i'm not gonna train them is there um, so it's like pain and pain, understanding the mechanisms of pain and tolerance is, wow, it's a minefield. I've, it I've, is a minefield. I've worked with some people that have got had chronic pain, and it's it's, it's very difficult to to work through it. Um, I've had athletes that can tolerate significant amounts of pain and, and will play, and I'm like, I don't know how you took to the <laughs> court. You know, you give me a visa scale, and I'm like, wow, how are you even coping with that? And sometimes it's because they've just grown used to it and will tolerate it. So I think it's very individual. You work on your, your pain scale, you know, what you think of as, you know, so maybe it's when they've, when they've injured or when it's at its worst, it's a 10, okay, out of 10. Okay, can we get that down to a two out of 10 on a normal training day? And if you have a match exposure, it goes up to six, but within 24 hours, it's back down to two. So is that acceptable? Can we live with that, you know? What we probably don't want to be doing is bobbing along at a ten, all day, every day. You know that that's probably not a good place to be. So, I think it will be very individual on what people are happy to tolerate, where they are in their career, as well. What because we have to be realistic again. It's you know if this is one shot at a major championships, it's your last time. Are you willing to tolerate a little bit more discomfort going into that than if you were a young uh, player for the first time, you know, I don't think I'd want a young kid in severe pain and and training around it and adaptive around it. You want to get to the root cause so they have a long and healthy career, and you do your due diligence and make sure that they they thrive up once they retire. But you know, when you're a senior pro, you can make informed decisions about what you want to do to to your body. I mean, I just you know, you've, you've you've turned up at the end of a sort of me consulting with an athlete to look at coming back from an injury. And it's like, we need to make a decision about what you, as the athlete, are prepared to do this season. What what do you feel you're comfortable with? What what are you going to accept? Do you want to compete in this event this weekend? Do you want to wait three, four weeks? Or do you want to go, no, actually, I'm going to wait 13 weeks? We can do all three of those. Mm-hmm. It's just what you're prepared, understand the consequences, understand what you want to do, and, and then... And, and that's where physios and S&C coaches and everything really need to work together. Yeah also yeah um and managing the psychology through that as well because huge, huge. 
how much how much of your job is is sort of specifics of of exercise variables or designing programs and how much is just managing the psychology of, of athletes and so so I, so I do a program design course so I don't want to say program design is not important because it is <laughs> it is but um, if, you, if you look at many of the conferences and people that I'm seeing speaking now we're not so much interested in the X and O's of what goes on the nuts and bolts it's like I understand sets and reps loading we, we get that it's actually how do we get people engagement? How do we increase athlete engagement, adherence, patient adherence in the NHS departments? How do we actually get them doing what they're, what they're doing? Because ultimately, particularly in sport, we have to realise most people don't want to do strength training. They want to play football, rugby, <laughs> cricket. That's why they got into cricket or rugby or hockey or tennis. Not because they wanted to lift weights. Crossfitters got into weights because they like lifting weights. Olympic weightlifters and powerlifters did and s coaches did. Everyone else <laughs> just loves doing sport. So once we realise that, we have to go, okay, what's, what's the mindset? How do we get into the mind of that? How do we make them, how do we get them to do things that they might not necessarily want to do? And, you know, the, I talk about Seth Godin. There's a lot of work that he does. Great book about called Lynchpin. He's not, he's not a physio, he's not an SSC coach, he's a salesperson. But he talks about the psychology of how do you get people to buy into what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Dale Carnegie's got a book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People written in the 1920s nothing to do with strength conditioning but everything to do about forming relationships and understanding okay well why are you saying what you're saying why aren't you doing let me see why that is and how can I influence it so I think again I don't it's probably not taught formally at university you know so you know your physio degree probably needs a few new modules which I'm more <laughs> happy to, to put together but you know the, the the softer side of things the interactions we can spend all of our time honing our technical skills. And I see this a lot, and it's, it's starting to happen in strength and conditioning a lot, because the original cohort of strength and conditioning coaches kind of learned on the job, whereas now you're getting graduates doing undergrad and postgrad degrees. So they come out uber smart. These guys are clever. They know how to write a good spreadsheet. They know how to monitor all the stuff. You put them in front of an injured athlete, they don't know what to say. They don't know how to engage. They don't know that, that interpersonal skills. They haven't got the empathy. They haven't been where the athletes have been. So you can't underestimate that. You know, there's a reason why a basketball player that I worked with four years ago on the national squad, after two or three years playing internationally, has come back to me this summer and said, I need you to work with me to get me in shape for the next two to three years. It's not because I write the best spreadsheet or I've got the latest exercise. It's because she trusts me. She trusts me to do what I say I'm gonna do, and we have a professional working relationship. We have, a, we have shared history that we've gone through with previous injuries. You can't underestimate that. You won't learn that in a book. And, and that applies not only to athletes, but, but Mrs. Pop. Mrs. Smith wanting yeah. to get around Tesco. So do you find it difficult to teach? I suppose, the way I look at it, I, I think it would be easier to get a, an athlete, a footballer or a rugby player, to buy into lifting weights and strength and conditioning than I would Mrs. Smith, who just wants to get round Tesco. Would you see a difference there? Yeah, everyone's perception is that athletes are amazing and they always want to train and do so. It's, it's not the case. You know, sometimes they can be the hardest ones, the most, because ultimately they want to go and ride their bike or play football or they don't want to lift. 
you have to both with Mavis or Fred, general population, or your elite athlete, what you have to do is make connections between, right, how did you get injured? What was it doing? What would you like to be able to do? Do you want to be able to run 5K? Do you want to be able to lift the grandkids up? Do you want to start the mower without blowing your back? And equally, what do you want to do as a professional player? Do you want an extra year on your contract? Do you want to sign for a new team? Do you want to be able to play every minute of every game? You need to understand the outcome. And then you need to make the connection between this rather abstract place, the gym or the rehab couch, and make the connection between that and performance. Once they understand that what we do here directly impacts on performance, then you've got them. There's a reason why some of my best advocates of strength and conditioning are players that have been injured and have seen their careers potentially end or be shortened and then have rehabilitated diligently and have had extended careers and gone, do you know what? Why wasn't I doing this five years ago? Why wasn't I doing this 10 years ago? I am doing this all the time because they make the connection. And that's the same with even your recreational uh, population or your, your sedentary population that haven't even got... If you can say, look, if we do this, it will give you the confidence to always be able to walk up and down the steps. You like going to the National Trust, you like going to this particular site that's got lots of steps, well, if we do this work, that means you're going to be able to still visit there. You're not going to have to miss out on that particular part that you really like going to. You'll be able to walk up the hill or back down the hill to the coffee shop that you like. So it's about making connections, no matter how simple they may seem, particularly with general population, you know, to make them feel normal and that you can do, you can do stuff. So they're, they're, they're all humans at the end of the day. There's no well, difference yeah, in the Yeah, guess what? Guess what, Mark? It's like, this is the thing. We're not, we're not working with a spreadsheet. You've got to work with humans. And I think it's interesting that you see within sport and NHS and you see people in these professions that are basically people-facing, front-facing engagement activities. I've met some SNC coaches and I'm like, you, you hate life. You hate athletes. Why on earth are you working in an area where you have to have daily interactions <laughs> with, with human beings yeah. and conversations and empathy? And I think sometimes you get people that are just, they're better off in a, behind a spreadsheet or, or data managing. Um, but you do see people, I'm like, you really don't like working with people. You're in the wrong business. Why did you do that? Yeah, because the exercises are important, program design is important, but it's the, it's the relationship that you build. The conversation that I just had with, with the athlete before you came in, mm. it was about, she was talking all about, okay, what am I going to do for the next three weeks? Where am I going to base myself? I, I would like to work with these guys that I've worked with in the past. I trust them. It worked last time. The surgeon that she went to see did an operation on, a, on another injury. She's like, I trust him. That's who I want to see. There's nothing that, technically, they're all very proficient and they're all very good, but the, they didn't talk about their skills of, making an insert a, a suture or you know or Nick picked a really good exercise it was what did they talk about trust mm. success mm. good outcome it, it's those softer skills that are important and that's applicable to everyone that's everybody not, that's yeah. not an essence yeah. anything specifically no. no absolutely fine so we've, we've we've covered a lot of ground there a lot of ground over the last hour um, if you were to to give us some some take home messages things you would really like rehab professionals whether that's uh, physios or sports rehabilitators or anyone with an interest in in, in rehabilitating injury 
what will be your take-home messages? What will be the things you would really want to push? Um, I, I think, you know, see, see developing a network of allied professionals as a strength rather than uh, a sign of weakness or a sign of a lack of knowledge. Because it, it absolutely isn't. You know, surround yourself with really knowledgeable people. Surround yourself with a, a surgeon that you think you refer to, an SSC coach that you refer to, a physio. You know, have that network because that will, in private practice or NHS or within sport, that's that's the that's going to be really powerful for you. You know, this week, actually over the last three weeks, two big injuries that I've had to deal with, and the the team managers have been reaching out saying, "Do you know? Have you got someone?" And it's like, "Okay, let's have a look. This is who we'd recommend in this region. This is who we'd recommend in that region." It's not a sign of weakness. It's not me saying, "Oh, I can do it all. I can do it all. I'll be the physio, the SNC, and the." You know, you go, no, actually, scope of practice, go and see this guy. Go and see this, this practitioner. So I think, firstly, people to have, just have confidence in, in others' ability. I think um, there's a, uh, I think it's Japanese or, and Korean sort of saying about a beginner's mindset. Um, just be comfortable in, in that you don't know it all and that there's loads of stuff that we have no real idea about. And always approach every injury or every aspect with that beginner's mindset. Don't go in there thinking, right, I've got the answers to this. This is how, how we're going to do it. Be open to new ideas, new strategies, working with other professionals. They'll, they'll bring something to it. Um, and I think, you know, with that, just link to it, you know, almost do like a SWOT analysis or, or a needs analysis of your, of your own skill set. And if there's a gap, either plug it with an allied health professional. Like, I'm never going to train as a surgeon. So, you know, there's a, there's a big gap in my knowledge set. So, but I'm, but I'm going to find a couple of surgeons that I think, okay, shoulder guy, knee guy, th that's who we refer to. So either do that and plug it with an expert, so it goes back to the allied health professionals, or do a course, go on a workshop, read books. You know, I became a better strength coach, weirdly, when I started reading things by someone like Seth Godin, when I started reading biographies about successful people. And sometimes people are like, what, why are you reading a book from the 1920s about how to win friends and influence people? It's like, well, because I've got a really tricky performance director that I'm trying to have a conversation about the way we're going about rehab or strength training, and I need to find out how to get through to him and how to change the way I talk and the way I deal with it. So I think getting better at the, 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 the art and science of coaching and rehab and the psychology is, is the key. Is there any materials you'd recommend then? Obviously, you've 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 already named a few few books there that people can go and search. Uh, I th yeah, I mean it's it's ever changing. I mean, one of the current books that I really like at the moment, Conscious Coaching by a guy called Brett Bartholomew. Brett Bartholomew. Yeah. Re really worth having a look at that, you know. And it's it's not just aimed at SNC coaches. It's anyone that has to have interactions with people, go go and read that. I'd look at the work by Nick Winkleman, who, mm -hmm. who's looking at um, in, uh, internal and external cueing. Yeah. Again, the health professionals and the physios, Jesus Christ, they love to tell you about glute medius and TVA co-contraction. And Doris doesn't give a monkeys. Why are, you, why are you talking about anatomy to them? They have no idea. Talk to them about, use metaphors, use imagery, use targets, external cues that allow someone to actually be successful. Am I, am I contracting my VMO? I don't even know if it exists. So, like, what's the point? What is the point other than trying to show that you're clever? 
So I'd look at Nick Wickham and Brett Bartholomew, I'd look at their work. Seth Godin, I think any of his books, but start with Lynchpin, is, is a good starting point. Um, how to win friends and influence people is really great. I'm not mentioning any sort of strength conditioning text, but there's... You've there's not even mentioned Dan your own book. No, I'm not, because I'm not a famous <laughs> publicist. Um, uh, Dan Lewenden's got some, uh, uh, I think it's Rehabilitation and High Performance Sport. Yeah. I've probably got that completely wrong, the title, but you can probably go back and do a name yeah. check and find out. There, there are some really good sort of rehab books out there with a practical practical slant, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and all of those are just applicable straight out of the book. Yeah, I think so. I think... The, the key thing for me is understand the principles. Yeah. So we live in an age on social media where every, everyone sees, goes to the shouty person that is creating the polar opinion, the polarisation of opinions. And it's easy to live in the, in the polar opposite. So it's easy to be the guy that thinks we should all do Nordics and it's easy to be the guy that thinks that we should all do stuff that's very functional. And, that's not, and they end up having a massive pissing contest and my dad's bigger than your dad and this reason... Yeah. That's not helpful. That's Ever, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's shouting, but no one's listening. So actually, what we need is that middle ground and go, actually, if I understand the principles, there will be times when I use an exercise, like a hamstring uh, eccentric lower. And there'll be times when I might, heaven forbid, use a hamstring mm. curl, which is an open <laughs> kinetic chain. Oh my God, the world's going to end. But contextually, if the context is right, you use it. It's not about the polarisation. That, that's just easy. It's easy to be the, the contrarian. Oh, well, you think that, well, I think this. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it really annoys me. I mean, just at the end there, there's, there's stuff that you mentioned. I feel like we could go on for probably another half hour on, 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 on external queuing and the whole Nordic debate. I, I, yeah. I do enjoy the debate around that. But we're we're pushing it like I know you've got places to be yeah I mean I mean, I mean very very quickly right? so I used to get my knickers in a twist about Nordic curls a little bit <laughs> um, it, it but if you go and watch these people they, when they actually when you actually look at the research and when you actually look at the data it, yes it's an exercise that has been researched and that's why it's getting a lot of the publicity and it is an effective exercise but so is a Romanian deadlift or a stiff head deadlift <laughs> that still causes um, nobody's done any comparison yeah, studies and, and, and that's the thing and it's not, even, even the, the research groups aren't saying that that's the only yeah. exercise. I, you know, I, I went and listened to Anthony Shield speak at the ASCA conference, and I went in there with a bit of a mindset of, oh, this is just going to be all about Nordic curls, Nordic curls, Nordic curls. And actually, I was pleasantly surprised. It was, it was a really balanced um, presentation that he gave. Yeah. He, yes, of course, he said that this is the research, and this is what yeah. we, we personally yeah. feel this is the best exercise, but equally... Stiff lead deadlift or remaining deadlift, whatever you want to call it, is a good second. And actually, don't forget, there's lots of muscle groups involved and depending on which one you're after, there'll be other exercises that also work. So it's a much more balanced overview, but what you get on social media is for and against arguments. And I'm not just in that, single leg versus double leg debates. It's like, oh, come on, really? It's like let's just get everyone's dads in the playground and have a fight it's yeah. like that, that's, it's just ridiculous school school children stuff yeah, yeah. no absolutely fine mate so as we wrap this up is, is there anything that you want to plug is there anything that you, you've got coming up um, I'm, I'm, I'm the world's worst salesman Mark to be honest um, yeah I mean I, I run private workshops working with a range of private physio clinics NHS departments that, that looks specifically at um, 
program design and the integration of strength and conditioning. Um, so that they, they pop up now and then on, on social media and if people want to get in touch with me and, and we'll, that, we'll, we'll certainly fine. point them that way yeah. and we'll point them to your website and other things yeah. as well yeah. and and you know other than that yeah I, I did, I've written a book um, which is <laughs> which was originally written for general population yeah, yeah. As, a, as, a, as a sort of a coffee table if you're going to train here's, here's an easy understanding guide lots of physios and SSC coaches have actually picked it up which is quite interesting to me because I wrote it in real layman's terms and real very Billy basic um, but the strength and conditioning bible is, is sort of out there and you know I think it's, well it's a good book I wrote it's it so, I, so I'm, I'm gonna I'll, I will I'll, I'll, I'll second that yeah. I've, 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 I've flicked through it it's, it's on my coffee table it's, it's an easy it's an easy read and I think it's an easy introduction yeah, it's yeah. very easy read yeah. it's, it's a great way great I've even recommended it to patients in the past that have had yeah. a, a real interest in, in training and developing their training that's, that's really who I aimed at I aimed it at end user rather yeah. than uh, sort of the rehabber but it seems that there is a need for it yeah perfect perfect well thanks very much for your time mate no worries man and um, we'll be in touch in the future great thanks for having us cheers bye session 43 Uh, many thanks to Nick Grantham for his time and uh, also massive thanks to Mark congratulations on your first interview mate um, absolute pleasure to listen to I'm sure you guys have all enjoyed it but um, please don't take for granted how difficult it sometimes is to just get on the get on the microphone and conduct those interviews in such a manner uh, many have tried and many have failed and uh, many struggle with those sorts of things and come conducting interviews at these uh, of these sorts of topics and uh, they're really important and there's a lot of pressure you know there's a lot of you guys listen now you know so it's hard to hard to pick up a microphone especially when you're not used to it and conduct an interview knowing that it's going out to what is 50,000 people a month download physio matters now which is absolutely incredible that's the last six months of data that we have um i've been missing the boat on that because we always looked at how many download sort of each episode which is averaging about 24,000 downloads um but now we 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 didn't realize how many people were accessing of course the back catalog and so we ran that data and found out yeah we're averaging 50,000 which is just beyond my wildest dreams so thank you so much for that and also to the 0.1 percent of those 50,000 that uh, that download it, I think I've got that number right, which is that 0.1% of the, you that download it decide to throw us a few quid on a monthly basis to keep this for free and keep it accessible for all so we can really try and improve the... Uh, the quality of education that's out there and how accessible it is to really try and change the face and reform not just the profession but the industry at large and so we massively appreciate that as we always discuss bit of a summary from me because it's always nice when I, when I haven't been the one that's conducted the interview as nice as it is for you guys to get a break from me it's also useful for me to reaccess the information and come at it and listen to it just as you guys do and coming at it raw so when I do so I have my moments in which I'm delighted that the follow-up questions are what I was thinking and I'm also sometimes left to ponder what might have been answered if I'd have been the one asking the follow-up questions so some of the things that I've sort of thought about from listening to it myself would be that you know there is to some degree a mechanical assumption to the response to exercise I think that I don't want to sort of look at what wasn't said or be um, wondering as to what could have been asked but essentially when when Nick's sort of thinking about why might someone have got better from three sets of ten back in the day there is a there is then 
understandably as well because of the nature of his of his interests is that he would then think it was that sufficient to overload the tissues to then get an adaptive training response whilst i'm absolutely not suggesting it wasn't i just think that sometimes it's it's interesting that we we might sometimes be a bit mechanistic about it and wonder that wasn't that just that that was enough of a dosage to expose that person to a functional um exercise or activity or movement pattern that's then just exposing them gradually um, and reassuring them in that direction so there's those non-specific treatment effects and just of general exposure um which sometimes makes me then wonder about the three sets of 10 it's like well for all its flaws and it absolutely has them and all the critique that came of the three sets of 10 that came in this conversation i think one of the things to mention is it's, it's damn easy to remember isn't it if someone gives someone three sets of 10 they're going to remember it and it might well be a sufficient dosage. Uh, it's just that the, the, the rightful sort of annoyance with it is that sometimes it's given as a standard across the board, which is useless. Um, but three sets of 10 is memorable. And so in the early stages of, of rehab, if you're not necessarily needing to, especially in many cases, sort of uh, early stages, you're not needing to give them a specific dosage that's going to overload tissue in a specific way. You might want to give someone a more general principle of movement or please can you explore this part of range in this particular way. Then I'll find myself giving out, never mind three sets of 10, three sets of 10 will be more specific for me. I'd say just can you, you know, a couple of a couple of minutes, a couple of times a day, just explore this movement uh, or this type of exercise or just bear some weight through this limb or that limb. And I can sometimes be even more general than that. And so it gives me pause for thought i'm not suddenly saying oh that's that's me being right i'm just sort of wondering am i being too vague there based on what we've heard there from mark and nick or is it that really there's just certain stages of rehab where it really doesn't matter so much and then there's other times in which we need to make sure we are aware of the principles so that we can apply them more specifically when we need to so that's really given me pause for thought and um which is if, if not for that then what are these podcasts for i really enjoyed this that what nick had said about research pragmatism we've got to make sure that we recognize that um we, we've got to understand things on a case-by-case basis and that this certainly cohorts of patients in which you're not going to get rct level data to acquire an understanding for which exercise to give out over which um you've got to make sure that you try if, if you can to either formally or informally Share your share your work, share your workings um, for the betterment of the wider community, whether it be that informally through blogs, podcasts, sound bites, and case studies on social media, um, or if you get chance to, then things like, you know, don't underestimate the ability of a, of a case series in particular um, sample populations, that that will be really valuable to your colleagues. And so we've got to make sure that we try and shake off the sometimes academic snobbery that can occur around the need to get this specific and robust statistical work that needs to be done whilst that's super important and we have massive thanks to those that are doing it there is something to be said for the frontline coalface work that needs to be shared so i hope we give platforms to that too and i hope that you guys can uh, share that widely across social media if you're seeing it and if there's lots of stuff that's happening in in snc in the snc world that we're not aware of that's sort of like that that we can share then please make us aware of it across social media that would be great Finally, the one of the things that my, Nick had said, which is certainly uh, often comes up in, in our podcast and it's very much considered the physio matters way is his appeal to the middle ground, the appeal to moderation and the, 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 this is the point that really all, all things should be discussed and open uh, and that really that polarization is, is only ranty and only easy. Um, that's a really useful point and, and certainly something that we, we, 
we get called out on all fronts for that. Sometimes we're seen as being wishy-washy moderates and other times, depending on where someone is on the spectrum of one particular issue, then they'll suggest that we're quite polarised relative to them. And so we've got to recognise that all these things are relative to someone or an institution's certain position on a topic. And so the only way we know to deal with that is to have conversation as widely as possible and to understand everyone else's views and to not infer motives on people as best we can um, and be patient to discuss it openly and fairly and uh, where possible professionally uh, without getting too malicious and so whilst I'm seeing less and less of that of course on the internet it's just always worth mentioning that when we're especially when we're bridging gaps between professions as this sort of does with S&C then uh, that's a particular you, you can't make any assumptions that um, phys- if you're an S&C coach listening don't make the assumption that physios will know the, the broad scope of where your ideas have come from or the foundational principles and similarly the other way around if we're trying to reach across different professions then you know we, we might have to go back to principles and give people the patient uh, be patient with people and give people the space to talk and hear things out and get things wrong and misunderstand things you know uh, without things getting hostile and heated too quickly so just in case that might descend uh, then it then uh, always worth mentioning and, and, and appealing to the middle ground which whilst sometimes a fallacy can often be a lovely principle at least a starting off point and we can get heated once the once everything else has been uh, laid out on the table so massive thanks once again i'll stop wittering because even though i wasn't on this episode i've still managed to give a lengthy summary so massive thanks again to nick and mark as well as uh, follow them on twitter nick's at coach nick g and mark if you're feeling brave at mark reed physio you've got at tpm podcast of course which is a far more banterous and light-hearted account which you must already follow i imagine if you're on there Facebook and Instagram, of course, too. And keep an eye out on Facebook for our patron interviews, which are coming soon, discussing with the people that decide to throw us a few quid, why they think that's worthwhile, what Physio Matters means to them, um, what benefits and perks they get from supporting us that you guys don't, if you don't throw us a few quid, so the extras. Um, So have a little look on there. They will be probably shorter interviews than this damn summary. Um, So, yeah, we're probably going to chat with them for 10 minutes and find out what that what makes them tick and what makes them so interested in what we've got to say which uh, will no doubt enlighten us as well as you so thanks once again for listening it leaves me with the great pleasure of saying you've been listening to the physio matters podcast discussing physio matters because physio matters bye for now <laughs>